Chapter 24, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary B. Clayton. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 24, Work and Play, Part 2. Late in August 1851, I was visited at Bridgeport by a gentleman who was interested in an English invention patented in this country, and known as Phillips Fire Annihilator. He showed me a number of certificates from men of eminence and trustworthiness in England, setting forth the merits of the invention in the highest terms. The principal value of the machine seemed to consist in its power to extinguish flame, and thus prevent the spread of fire when it once broke out. Besides, the steam or vapor generated in the annihilator was not prejudicial to human life. Now, as water has no effect whatever upon flame, it was obvious that the annihilator would at the least prove a great assistant in extinguishing conflagrations, and that, especially in the incipient stage of a fire, it would extinguish it altogether, without damage to goods or other property, as is usually the case with water. Honorable Elijah Whittlesey, first comptroller of the United States Treasury in Washington, was interested in the American patent, and the gentleman that called upon me desired that I should also take an interest in it. I had no disposition to engage in any speculation, but believing this might prove a beneficial invention and be the means of saving a vast amount of human life as well as property, I visited Washington City for the purpose of conferring with Mr. Whittlesey, Honorable J. W. Allen, and other parties interested. I was there shown numerous certificates of fires having been extinguished by the machine in Great Britain, and property to the amount of many thousands of pounds saved. I also saw that Lord Brougham had proposed to Parliament that every government vessel should be compelled to have the fire annihilator on board. Mr. Whittlesey expressed his belief in writing that, quote, If there is any reliance to be placed on human testimony, it is one of the greatest discoveries of this most extraordinary age, end quote. I fully agreed with him and have never yet seen occasion to change that opinion. I agreed to join in the enterprise. Mr. Whittlesey was elected president, and I was appointed secretary and general agent of the company. I opened the office of the company in New York, and sold and engaged machines and territory in a few months to the amount of $180,000. I refused to receive more than a small portion of the purchase money until a public experiment had tested the powers of the machine, and I voluntarily delivered to every purchaser an agreement signed by myself in the following words, quote, If the public test and demonstration are not perfectly successful, I will at any time when demanded, within ten days after the public trial, refund and pay back every shilling that has been paid into this office for machines or territory for the sale of the patent. End quote. The public trial came off in Hamilton Square on the 18th December, 1851. It was an exceedingly cold and inclement day. Mr. Phillips, who conducted the experiment, was interfered with and knocked down by some rowdies who were opposed to the invention, and the building was ignited and consumed after he had extinguished the previous fire. Subsequently to this unexpected and unjust opposition, I refunded every cent which I had received, sometimes against the wishes of those who had purchased, for they were willing to wait the result of further experiments, 
but I was utterly disgusted with the course of a large portion of the public upon a subject in which they were much more deeply interested than I was. The arrangements of the Annihilator Company with Mr. Phillips, the inventor, predicated all payments which he was to receive on bona fide sales which we should actually make. Therefore, he really received nothing in the entire losses of the American company, which were merely for advertising and the expense of trying the experiments, hire of an office, etc., amounted to nearly $30,000, of which my portion was less than $10,000. In the spring of 1851, the Connecticut legislature chartered the Peconic Bank of Bridgeport with a capital of $200,000. I had no interest whatever in the charter and did not even know that an application was to be made for it. More banking capital was needed in Bridgeport in consequence of the great increase of trade and manufacturers in that growing and prosperous city, and this fact appearing in evidence, the charter was granted as a public benefit. The stock books were opened under the direction of state commissioners according to the laws of the Commonwealth, and nearly double the amount of capital was subscribed on the first day. The stock was distributed by the commissioners among several hundred applicants. Circumstances unexpectedly occurred which induced me to accept the presidency of the bank in compliance with the unanimous vote of its directors. Feeling that I could not, from my many avocations, devote the requisite personal attention to the duties of the office, C. B. Hubble, Esquire, then mayor of Bridgeport, was at my request appointed vice president of the institution. In the fall of 1852, a proposition was made by certain parties to commence the publication of an illustrated weekly newspaper in the city of New York. The field seemed to be open for such an enterprise, and I invested $20,000 in the concern, as special partner in connection with two other gentlemen, who each contributed $20,000 as general partners. Within a month after the publication of the first number of the Illustrated News, which was issued on the first day of January, 1853, our weekly circulation had reached 70,000. Numerous and almost insurmountable difficulties for novices in the business continued, however, to arise, and my partners becoming weary and disheartened with constant over-exertion were anxious to wind up the enterprise at the end of the first year. The goodwill and engravings were sold to Gleason's Pictorial in Boston, and the concern was closed without loss. In 1851, when the idea of opening a World's Fair in New York was first broached, I was waited upon by Mr. Riddle and the other originators of the scheme, and invited to join in getting it up. I declined, giving as a reason that such a project was, in my opinion, premature. I felt that it was following quite too closely upon its London prototype, and assured the projectors that I could see in it nothing but certain loss. The plan, however, was carried out and a charter obtained from the New York legislature. The building was erected on a plot of ground upon Reservoir Square, leased to the association by the City of New York for one dollar per annum. The location, being four miles distant from the City Hall, was enough of itself to kill the enterprise. The stock was readily taken up, however, and the Crystal Palace opened to the public in July 1853. Many thousands of strangers were brought to New York, and however disastrous the enterprise may have proved to the stockholders, it is evident that the general prosperity of the city has been promoted far beyond the entire cost of the whole speculation. In February 1854, numerous stockholders applied to me to accept the presidency of the Crystal Palace, or, as it was termed, quote, 
the Association for the Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations, end quote. I utterly declined listening to such a project, as I felt confident that the novelty had passed away, and that it would be difficult to revive public interest in the affair. Shortly afterwards, however, I was waited upon by numerous influential gentlemen, and strongly urged to allow my name to be used. I repeatedly objected to this, and at last consented much against my own judgment. Having been elected one of the directors, I was by that body chosen president. I accepted the office conditionally, reserving the right to decline if I thought, upon investigation, that there was no vitality left in the institution. Upon examining the accounts said to exist against the association, many were pronounced indefensible by those who I suppose knew the facts in the case, while various debts existing against the concern were not exhibited when called for, and I knew nothing of their existence until after I accepted the office of president. I finally accepted it, only because no suitable person could be found who was willing to devote his entire time and services to the enterprise, and because I was frequently urged by directors and stockholders to take hold of it for the benefit of the city at large, inasmuch as it was well settled that the palace would be permanently closed early in April 1854 if I did not take the helm. These considerations moved me, and I entered upon my duties with all the vigor which I could command. To save it from bankruptcy, I advanced large sums of money for the payment of debts, and tried by every legitimate means to create an excitement and bring it into life. By extraneous efforts, such as the re-inauguration, the monster concerts of Julian, the celebration of independence, etc., it was temporarily galvanized and gave several lifelike kicks, generally without material results except prostrating those who handled it too familiarly but it was a corpse long before I touched it, and I found after a thorough trial that my first impression was correct, and that so far as my ability was concerned, quote, the dead could not be raised, end quote. I therefore resigned the presidency, and the concern soon went into liquidation. In 1854, my esteemed friend, Reverend Moses Ballou, wrote, and Redfield of New York, published a volume entitled, quote, The Divine Character Vindicated, end quote, in which he reviewed some of the principal features of a work by the Reverend E. Beecher, brother of Henry Ward Beecher, quote, The Conflict of Ages, or The Great Debate on the Moral Relations of God and Man, end quote. The dedication in Reverend Mr. Ballow's volume was as follows, To P. T. Barnum, Esquire, Iranistan, My Dear B., I am more deeply indebted to you for personal favors than to any other living man, and I feel that it is but a poor acknowledgment to beg your acceptance of this volume. Still, I know that you will value it somewhat, not only for the sake of our personal friendship, but because it is an advocate of that interpretation of Christianity of which you have ever been a most generous and devoted patron. With renewed assurances of my best regards, I am yours always, M. B. Bridgeport. January 22nd, 1854. The following trifling incident which occurred at Iranistan in the winter of 1852 has been called to my mind by a lady friend from Philadelphia who was visiting us at the time. The poem was sent to me soon after the occurrence, but was lost and the subject forgotten until my Philadelphia friend recently sent it to me with the wish that I should insert it in the present volume. Winter Bouquets an incident in the life of an American citizen. The poor man's garden lifeless lay beneath a fall of snow, but art in costly greenhouses keeps summer in full glow. 
and taste paid gold for bright bouquets the parlor vase that dressed that scented fashion's gay boudoir or bloomed on beauty's breast a rich man sat beside the fire within his sculptured halls brave heart clear head and busy hand had reared those stately walls he to his gardener spake and said in tone of quiet glee i want a hundred fine bouquets canst make them john for me john's eyes became exceeding round this question when he heard he gazed upon his master and he answered not a word well john the rich man laughing said if these too many be what savest to half the number man canst fifty make for me now john prized every flower as twere a daughter or a son and thought like reagan what the need of fifty or of one but keeping back the thought he said i think sir that i might but it would leave my lady's flowers in very ragged plight well john thy vegetable pets must needs respected be we'll have the number once again make twenty-five for me and hark ye john when they are made come up and let me know and i'll give thee a list of those to whom the flowers must go the twenty-five bouquets were made and round the village sent and to whom thinkest thou my friend these floral jewels went not to the beautiful and proud not to the rich and gay who dives like at luxury's feast are seated every day an aged pastor on his desk saw those fair preachers stand a widow wept upon the gift and blessed the giver's hand where poverty bent o'er her task they cheered the lonely room and round the bed where sickness lay they breathed health's fresh perfume oh kindly heart and open hand those flowers and dust are trod but they bloom to weave a wreath for thee in the paradise of god sweet is the minstrel's task whose song of deeds like these may tell and long may he have power to give who wields that power so well mrs anna bach philadelphia end of chapter twenty four part two recording by gary b clayton